Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. Okay, so you guys all know that listening, play, and learning are my top three core values. And Antoinette Weibel, Weibel, we'll say in German, um, I started following her on LinkedIn. I just dug her vibe so much. So I I actually cold called her. Um, So let me tell you a bit about who she is. She's a Swiss trust and organization researcher, and she's a professor for personnel management at the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland. She studied economics at the University of Zurich. And she studied confidence and control, but her, her main area of focus is, is thinking about trust and how we build trust inside organizations. Um, she, she doesn't toot her horn, so I really want to toot her horn. We have kind of a winding conversation. She called me after. She goes, was that good enough? I'm like, I, I just want to turn people onto your work. And frankly, I want you to go follow her on LinkedIn because right now she's probably my number one source of getting my learning itch scratched because the way her mind works, challenging the status quo, thinking about the way capitalism might warp us away from trust building activities and really inviting us to stay in that liminal space of not knowing a little longer in our organizations and in our roles of leadership. And this is right along the lines of listening, right? So this is a really cool lady that I don't think I would have been able to introduce you to had I not been living in Europe. So I cannot wait for you to meet Antoinette Weibel. She's a professor at the University of St. Gallen. All right, Antoinette Weibel. I, I've been kind of stalking you on LinkedIn, and I was a little intimidated to reach out to you because I, I'm really a novice when it comes to leadership. I think I've always had a natural kind of lean in kind of style, but you post so many interesting things about leadership and trust and you're a researcher. And so I just had to talk to you and learn more from you. Tell me a little bit about how you even got into, like, I want to know you as a human before your research, how you even got into studying this stuff that you're studying. Well, I think um, you always study uh, the things you can't do very well yourself. So um, I am good at trusting, but I'm also kind of shy to really be vulnerable. So that may be one thing. So you always kind of go into a place where maybe not your natural comfort zone is completely there. So that was one thing. And the other thing was I wanted to study power. (laughs) But then somebody told me that's far too difficult. Why don't you study trust? <laughs> Which then turned out to be as complicated as power, but made much more fun to study. 
That is so cool. I'm glad I asked you this question. Maybe we should just do a side project on power sometime because I'm constantly consuming things in the field of psychoanalysts and psychotherapy on power. It's fascinating, yeah. fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So I, what has been the most surprising thing that you've discovered in your journey of studying trust in organizations and leadership? I'm curious, like the one that, the, the few that stand out that went, whoa, that's not what I was expecting. Well, first of all, but that's maybe a little bit naive um, because I'm coming from Switzerland and we are so-called a high-trust country. So we very quickly don't um, say trust and verify, but we believe that people offer their services. They will be, they will be honest people and everything will turn out fine. Um, so what I was really amazed at is how little trust we find in organizations and what I found even more amazing how difficult it seems to be for leaders to trust their employees, which I find in a way strange because coming back to power, they're the more powerful in the relationship and you would think it shouldn't be so difficult for them to let down their guard a little bit and do this first stop, step and, and start trusting. So um, that was amazing to me. What do you, what is that? I, I, you know, my therapist brain goes on and is like, what is going on in the psychology of that leader? For me, I love to sort of give people permission and see what they create with, with whatever they're given. But I get that that's not true for all leaders. What is actually happening there? Why is that so, do you think? Well, there are probably a number of explanations. One you have already given. Some people just find it easy to trust. So they have a naturally disposition to trust and, and they will trust wherever they are, even if they are in companies more easily. So that's one thing. Um, and we might have picked a lot of leaders which don't find it so easy. I mean, you have probably heard about it that we discussed that we always come up with these overconfident males as leaders and narcissists. So these are all people which are not as easily trusting. So that could be one explanation. Um, and then, of course, if you have a number of other leaders in your organizations uh, which are also not trusting, then it's not normal. So you stick your neck out if you're the person who is, who is trying to, to give trust to your team. So that, that's another explanation I find helpful. And the last one has something to do with um, where I am a professor at with the business schools, because we have been teaching in the last 30 years that it's better to think um, cautiously and to assume that other people are jerks, opportunists, self-interested people who wouldn't work if you don't pay them enough money for it. So I guess this kind of ideology has also very strongly gone into organizations and have, has made it more difficult as well. But I'm sure as a psychotherapist, you have even different explanations. So I'm not so good at looking at the deeper psychological areas that Bernie Brown is, for instance, looking at. That, that, that of course, are different explanations that you are fearful and, and have shame and all that kind of things. Yeah. Well, I think what you just said at the end there, though, was kind of fascinating because what you're saying is we're teaching people in business school potentially to be mistrusting, that somehow the culture of our training is setting people up. It's, you know, in, uh, in California, we call it the CYA effect, which is the cover your ass effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you want to make sure. And you know what, to be honest, when I first started Sidewalk Talk, I was more trusting. And then as mm -hmm. the years have gone by, I've been less trusting because I've gotten to experience 
bad actors, if you will, right, along the way. And, and, and at the same time, you know, one of somebody from nonviolent communication that I really admire, her name is uh, Mickey Cashton. She talks about, hey, look, you cannot organize your life around the few bad actors. Yeah. It's better to organize your life around what is actually more common, which is most people are pretty darn generous. And then yeah. if the bad stuff happens, it happens. So I think I'm back to trusting again after sort of studying Mickey's work. <laughs> clever, clever lady. And I mean, that's the same what we would say in trust research. It's good to start with a bias towards trust, which doesn't mean you have to trust forever. Because, of course, if you find out that the other person is not um, paying back your trust, then it wouldn't be very wise to keep on trusting, but always better start with that bias. And, and if you think about that, I really believe we have taken that principle out of organizations, not only by teaching managers to start with a bias in the opposite directions, with a bias to distrust, but also by all the instruments we're using in organizations. For instance, um, We're using pay for performance, very, very strong bonus systems because we believe otherwise people will not do anything. Well, of course, if you always have these bonus systems, it's also hard for you to find out that people would work also without bonuses, just for a good pay and without having carrots in, in front of them, for instance. So we have created not only the managers, um, which we have imbued with these ideologies, but also systems which can really place a premise on distrust. And, and I think that's, that's, that's a big part of the explanation. Gosh, I, this is just, so I used to sell software in, in the Silicon mm -hmm. Valley. And so mm -hmm. half of my income was based on bonus. And the mm -hmm. impact on my mental health, because there was always this um, pressure yeah. to achieve the bonus, And it felt very dehumanizing. And frankly, there, there was one quarter where I had yeah, far achieved my bonus that I'm like, well, since I get paid this way, I'm going to try to delay payment on this other deal until next quarter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and then we can show that empirically, all what you're kind of um, have experienced. We can show that with many, many studies that this is happening. And we can also show that this leads to more sickness days, that, do, that you, in the end you don't have more sales because people do what you are um, were doing in a clever way, because people are clever and are adapting, that you crowd out intrinsic motivation, so they find the job not interesting any longer, that you bring in complete only self-interest, so you create the jerks you were thinking people are although they weren't before. <laughs> That's exactly right, though. You create the jerks. And I think what you'd said at the top of the interview, which was, if we set up the culture this way, and I've said this for a while, I'm thinking about politics now, and I'm from the US, and I've been, I was a political science major undergrad. So I'm always thinking about what gets us to elect certain kinds of leaders. And some of this that you're describing has us idealize these certain characteristics like a narcissist that might not be incredibly trusting, right? I've also been very fascinated by, and I don't know if you can speak to this idea of social trust, but it just seems like all these, these little things are chipping away, chipping away at our sense of trust in each other, you know? 
Well, I think this is a process that started probably oh, 25 years ago. I can remember there was a sociologist who wrote about the corrosion of character, which again comes back to this new, new type of workplaces we have ever since, where you have a lot of stress and you're only temporarily employed and you're just an instrument, you're a resource, a human resource, but still a resource. So that starts to leave people in a way stranded. And I think with much less intrinsic motivation, probably also with much less moral orientation, because you don't have the time to develop that. You are not given the space to develop that. And, and, and that, of course, in my opinion, opens a lot of possibilities. I just posted an article uh, on the weekend I found on toxic leaders, and they were um, finding out that people which are high on uncertainty will mainly run after toxic leaders. Now, why would people be high on uncertainty? Yes, because we have kept them as children or made them back to children through our workplaces. I mean, that may be a little bit of strong hypothesis, but I'm quite sure that it, this has something to do it's with it. It's very psychological. It's saying, what I hear you saying is if we're high anxiety, we don't have a lot of internal security, then we're going to look for leaders that look like a mother or a father that seem really high security. But oftentimes those leaders, often those leaders that are very concrete, that think they know it all, are oftentimes not as collaborative, are low trust. Yeah. Oh, this is a great connection. I love it. Hey, you know what I just realized as we're talking? (laughs) Why don't we define the word trust? Yeah, How would okay. you define it? Okay. Um, I give you first a quote I always like because it's not by a, uh, by a psychologist or an economist. I'm an economist by training. So it's by Henri-Louis Mencken. I think he's an American, isn't he? So he said, trust is when you believe that a man is telling you the truth, even if you know that you would lie if you were in his place. And I find that quite nice because it shows that you really believe in another person. That's what trust is all about. So you put all your belief in the goodness of another person. And and that's why most psychologists say it's a willingness to be vulnerable. Uh, Because I believe this person is good, I would also maybe jump from a cliff um, because I expect that person to hold me um, rather than to um, let me crash onto the floor or something like that. Um, so uh, th- th- I think this is this is the core. It's it's I'm really daring something because I believe in you. And then we can be a little bit more precise and look what it means to dare and what I'm what I really believe in. So that's where we get more complicated. As I hear you talking, what comes to mind is just how big our companies have gotten, right? And is it even possible? It just seems like such a hard thing to achieve trust in multinational organizations where, you know, there's so many layers between people and fostering that level of vulnerability. Well, well that's true. Um, but I mean, as humans, um, we, we have it, we start with our closest connections. So in a, in a company, it's of course our team where we can trust. And, and our direct team leader who can show their trust in us. Um, it is also what you feel the organization in. So um, again, it could be the HR practices, which are either nice for you or the opposite. I mean, you can, you can sense 
if if they have a software which is spying on you, then of course you're not going to trust your employer. <laughs> so you can sense the intention behind. And then, I mean, Edelman has made a business out of that, the trust barometer. Um, I think it's a public relations company, isn't it, Edelman? Uh, so they have kind of also said how um, CEOs uh, would have to be seen in order that we put our trust in them. Because as you, you have just talked about the political leaders, but it's the same for all leaders, trust has faltered. Um, and so what I um, what I found quite interesting there is that they now found out, oops, it's not that we are looking so much for uh, the brilliant minds who can tell us how the future looks like, but we are now at present looking more for people who have a, a passion for other people who maybe love their employees up to a certain degree, if you can put it this way. Um, and who are showing integrity, walk the talk. And I think we, can, we also know why this is the case, because we've missed that in the last 10 years. Let's be a little bit not political here. <laughs> yeah, I, I was talking to a colleague who she, she has led bigger teams. <clears throat> we were talking about how it's bi-directional, though. It's not just that we have leaders that are narcissistic it's back to the thing that you said we we do dehumanize leaders right like i i can recall sharing with someone oh my gosh i feel super anxious about this thing or i don't know what the heck i'm doing and they're like oh you can't say that you're the leader you know and i get that you know when you're a leader you're trying to hold the container for everybody but at the same time there's this kind of wish wish for that omnipotent figure sometimes yeah that's that's true that's uh, that's true although i'm i'm not so sure if you would look at agile organizations or new work organization because um their people are kind of getting this sense of security through their jobs because they believe i can contribute here i can see that i can affect things so they're coming from a different place and I think in that case, it's not so difficult. It's probably more difficult in a in an organization which is still very traditional or even going towards a, a new tailorism with the new, um, I mean, you've been to Silicon Valley with all their technical gadgets they're now offering to kind of monitor people. Um, but even there, I, I, I mean, we found in our research, we looked at technology and trust that a good leader can make all the difference. I mean, again, then it probably has to be the leader and the way we also select leaders. But if a, if, if a leader is kind of being more this positive father figure um, and holding the space and listening to people and helping them um, to still thrive in such an environment, um, then then this person is not going to be dehumanized. It's, it's, it's of course, a question of... Um, um, how, how you pick the leaders in such a situation, how you teach the leaders, how you develop the leaders. Yeah. Yeah. You're making me think about this other piece that we we sort of touched on before we started recording, which was this idea of trust and not just leadership, but then trust and there's a lot going on in the world around how can we create more engagement amongst our teams? How can we create more well-being? So outside of leadership in and of itself, 
how are organizations from your research sort of tackling this idea of employee engagement and wellness? Probably two big topics separate, but just wanted to riff with you. Well, I think um, engagement is, for engagement, you mainly need be given trust in the sense that you are given autonomy, that you that people entrust you and, and let you try out things. Um, that's, that's one important thing. And by trying out things that you're also allowed to fail because it's about learning, about um, engaging your curiosity, um, about being a little bit more playful. Um, and I think if you manage to do that and, and companies which are trying to really bring up new ways of working together um, are working with self-organization, are working with how can we learn from each other, how can we embrace failures as learning events rather, rather than as mistakes. Um, I think then you also have, of course, um, very, it's not only engagement, it's really thriving or flourishing what you then get. And I think that's really valid and, and where we all would want to be, I would say so. Hard to do when there's a, a bottom line. I mean, if a failure costs you, you know, 10 million bucks in a company that brings in $30 million a year, harder to sort of have those playful failure-related environments, right? Well, but I mean, normally it's not like you you have, I mean, you probably have rules for that. I can remember Gore, for instance. Gore has this below the water mark line. So as long as the ship is not sinking, you're allowed to do your experiments. If the ship could be sinking, then of course you first have to discuss whether you want to do things or not. Um, so I'm not probably thinking about this really big um, um, mistakes you could do, but it's it's in your daily work where you have to try out things and where always some things can happen that are not going the right way. And then it's really about learning so you don't do the same mistake twice. That's, I think, the main thing about it. I think I'm better at this than anything else I do. <laughs> okay. Ma- making mistakes. <laughs> Yeah, probably we all are, but as a as a professor and researcher, I'm very detail oriented, and I do have to learn to embrace my mistakes. Let's put it this way. Okay. Well, <laughs> if you ever if you ever need help embracing your mistakes, you know who to you know who to call because I'm your gal. Because <laughs> I'm really good at it. I make lots of them, and I have a good chuckle with myself. But I suspect because my work isn't as detail oriented, it's more fluid. It's like, oh, that's a brush stroke, and I'm just going to make the brush go a different way or put another color over the top not so much with data and and research yeah but I mean of course you're right you would also have to look at the the type of job but um, you can really almost look at any types of job um, even at the industrialized jobs Um, if you look at all the movements such as total quality management and all that kind of stuff which went through our companies they were all about learning so I think that not learning in itself is not the problem. Um, it's of course you have to let go a little bit of the control, but in the end um, it pays. If if that's the point, I mean I think in the end it pays. Uh, you will have a better profit if you are embracing learning. Yeah, you know it's funny as I listened to you. The first software that I sold 
was knowledge <laughs> management software. Okay. <laughs> so remember that? That was, what was that? Like 15 years ago, that was all the rage. Uh, Six Sigma, Black Belt, yeah, knowledge yeah. management people. <laughs> I've seen oh, it all. <laughs> I know. I bet you have. I bet you have. So I, I'm curious as you bring this into your, because you're a, you're not only a researcher, but you're living and breathing in an institution. I mean, yeah. this is all happening while you are a leader and being led. Yeah. And so as you think about some of these principles, which ones have really contributed to your own well-being, to the well-being of those around you, to your team? Where has where have you actually seen some stories of where the research really bears out in your own life? Well, I think um, what we have talked about, what is really helping people to thrive, um, that you give them um, their own little, not little, can be a big space where they can develop, um, that you are engaging in, in, in a positive feedback and in a learning cycle. Um, also trust in, in the sense that we like each other, um, that we share emotions, that we have fun with each other. That at least was always um, the best way for my team to come up with ideas, to come up with good research and to have a nice time together. So um, if I take the position of a middle leader, which I probably am, um, I find it easy to do that for my team. It's much more difficult, however, to do that in the whole institution because a university, not unlike other big companies, is power play, is male dominance, is um, lots of people, which I believe are a little bit desperate and lonely, but cannot get out of their rot and cannot, they always have to put their masks on. Um, so in that sense, uh, I think the real art would be, and I have to admit, I probably haven't mastered that myself, is to really bridge across peers, but also to, I mean, in the university, you don't have very steep hierarchies, but still um, to bridge and to be able to bring that spirit also um, to other levels where power plays are more prominent. Um, and yeah, I find that difficult. And, and the thing probably because I find it difficult is because I can shy away from it because a, a university professor doesn't have to engage. Yeah, It's a nice add-on, but it's not <laughs> like, yeah, it's not the same. I mean, if I was in, a, in an organization and I had to do this traditional career, it would look very differently, wouldn't it? Yeah. So it's a little bit like, yeah, I can choose my own team. I have a great um, atmosphere there. I can craft it. If with the other professors, it's difficult. Well, okay, there are not so many occasions where we have to cooperate. Yeah, I, you know, you brought something up and I was speaking to another researcher in the US and we were talking about how so often different you know, more psychological, but how often health is defined by the narrative of the male, which is mm. tends to be stoic, hyper-rational, intellectual, yeah. and you're describing that in a university setting and that, and, and I'm just mashing up a bunch of different little, little pieces and that when we don't feel like we can be vulnerable when we have identified, because I think women can be male. To, like I have identified with the masculine parts of me too, mm. that when I'm not feeling secure enough to be vulnerable, then that's when we go for status over belonging. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that seems to be sometimes 
you know, when we're all scrambling for status, I have to believe that interrupts trust. Hmm. It, it, it does. Um, but I mean, you were also asking about my experiences. I find it incredibly difficult to break through um, these power and mask, mask plays kind of we have um, on. Um, even though I believe I'm still a very open person and I managed to show my vulnerability, but that's not enough. And, and that's maybe why we, we started the project now where we want to help middle managers to show appreciation, to, to show affection even, and not only to their team, but also at least on the peer level, because we believe you're, of course, a better negotiator. You're a better broker between different um, departments, between the clients and your uh, department, if you're able to do that. Um, but it's it's very hard. It's very hard. Um, and it's it, it is. I'm, I'm really curious how many men are going to take our programs <laughs> because it's might be a little bit harder for men. Yeah, I, I hear you. And I, one of my favorite, I work with a lot of men in my practice and there's something about my, you know how I'm a good mistake maker, I said. Mm -hmm. So when I approach men, I also don't have them feel like um, they have to do emotions mm -hmm. right. I'm like, no, no, just make a bunch of mistakes doing the emotions mm -hmm. with me, <laughs> right? just let's just make mistakes. And they're like, Oh my God, it's such a relief. And I just, I love it because they come in and they don't feel so scared and yeah. like they're going to be picked on because they don't have the same emotional vocabulary that frankly, my gender training afforded yeah. me with, yeah. you know? Yeah. So I'm finding that a lot of men, I'm lucky because I was, you know, a born, born and raised Californian. And especially for these younger men, I'm finding they have so much emotional yeah. intelligence. Yeah so much capacity to be vulnerable. But other generations, it's not that they're narcissists or jerks, it's that they really didn't ever get the training. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And I find that that's a, another thing we can contribute in education, in training. Um, you're doing that in therapy, but I think giving people the vocabulary is already a good start. And you can give them the vocabulary for trust, but also for emotions. And I think that's really important. Just that you are getting a little bit more secure and, and really can start with, start with the small stuff. I mean, I believe what you're doing, the listening, that's, that's already quite hard. But saying thank you, for instance, that cannot be that hard. So we just have to find out how can I say thank you in a way that feels right to me and that I'm remembered yeah. that I do that from time to time. You know, it was really interesting around this listening thing. I once took a, a team out to the sidewalk of men and women. Mm -hmm. And that was interesting because it felt like a safer way for men and women to sort of be vulnerable together and the same corporate team. It was a team from SAP, mm -hmm. actually. And there, there there's no risk because they're listening to somebody who's a stranger, mm -hmm. who's not from their place of work. And then they were able to dialogue afterwards mm -hmm. in a way that felt less risky because mm -hmm. they were talking about the experience. Yeah. And I could see all the learning that was happening in the debrief after, right? When they were talking about, huh, what was it like to engage with that human yeah. and what came up inside of you? And some, when some people were like, I don't know, even know how to track what comes up inside mm -hmm. of me. <laughs> 
but they're learning that from hearing other people talk about it. And I thought that was kind of interesting. That's that's a really, really nice way to, um, because I think that's also, you then realize how gratifying it can be to you. It loses a little bit of this risky, I don't know what's coming out of that, if I'm not able to listen perfectly or whatever. So great, good idea. (laughs) It was lucky we didn't go out and choose it we someone we knew said hey will you do this for our team and I said sure and it surprisingly had this you know sometimes when we do corporate trainings it can get a little sterile right this is on the street serving your community and then having this team building experience which I guess is why companies also do a lot of volunteering because I imagine that builds trust amongst teams right Yes, but I think what you were doing there is is building more, again, also intrinsic motivation because you do something for the greater good. You feel uh, that you can, that you're able to do that. You learn something new and then that makes it probably easier for you to use that in the companies as well. And then, of course, you, you start building trust. I think it's essential for building trust that you're also able to to listen. Yeah, I mean, it sounds so easy, but I mean, that that is one of the most essential points, isn't it? <laughs> You said, if I had my husband here right now, he would tell you that I'm a terrible listener. I teach what I most need to learn. <laughs> talked about that already. <laughs> Same for me. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so one other question that I wanted to ask you in terms of where you hope the workplace goes, based on your research and, and just based on what's happening in our society, what are you hoping begins to shift? And I get it might be a recap of some of the things we've covered, but the things that you really see stand out. Yeah, I mean, uh, something what you are doing um, and, and, and others of this um, really new movements, um, I think give me a lot of hope. I think we are in a time when we realize we cannot go on like we were in the last 25 years. Um, And I believe that we now understand that listening, for instance, is very important, that trust is something we shouldn't, um, we should rebuild because otherwise our societies will fall apart. And and that we all want to be, if we have a choice of thriving or suffering, each of us would rather be thriving than suffering. And I hope that more and more organizations take that on board. And if not, that, that at least that people have the choice between those organizations which have understood it and took it on board um, and don't have to work with these others which are suffering machines, in my opinion. So I am... Suffering machines. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. But it's, I mean, if you think about it, we have built suffering machines and... and, and, and it's also who has given us the right to create suffering machines? I and mean, it's also an ethical question. I, I can't remember or, or I can't think of any reason why we, we should be able to do that, even if it was for the profit. It's just inherently bad to make individuals suffer. Wow, that was profound. I realize I have one more question before I'm going to let you go. If you were, if, if you were to consult me, you were to consult... A, a leader down the street, a leader in your town, and he, he or she said, I want to do a better job cultivating trust. What are the top three things that I, they need to do to cultivate trust? Well, find some interest in your employees because the, this is the first step to love your employees. 
find out what they do, what they're interested at when, when their birthday is. Um, then of course that goes together very well with listening because you have to listen in order to find the interest. Um, and then um, if you are interested, you will find things which are um, to appreciate and then appreciate more. Um, I think if you manage to um, have an interest to listen and to appreciate, you're already a very big step towards trusting yourself, but also being trusted more. Mm. Beautiful. Well said. Well, I told you that we had this little ritual, Antoinette, how we say goodbye, which is that I get out of the way and let you offer words of wisdom or a wish to those folks here at Sidewalk Talk that listen on the sidewalk. What would you want to say to them without me in the way? I, I think I just want to tell you that I find this admirable that you're doing this and that um, this is probably one of the biggest steps we can take each of us, not just talking, but doing something and, and doing something like what you are doing, really paying attention to and listening to people. Thank you so much. I'm going to put so much information about some of the papers and things that you've posted on LinkedIn. Um, I appreciate the work that you're doing in the world, and I hope one day you'll write something on power. <laughs> I'm not going to promise that. <laughs> but uh, um, are we already offline again? We're not <laughs> offline. Thank you so much, Antoinette, for being here. And everyone that's listening in, please check the show notes where you can find out some more information. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.